Maya Govan, and welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and I have another special guest today. We've got Tony Mead, who, among other things, is famous for recently doing five different panels at the Fan Expo Comic-Con equivalent in Denver, Colorado, and he's also a major participant and, and frequent commenter in the Tolkien Professor's um, exploring the Lord of the Rings series, which is how I mm-hmm. first caught his name because it comes up over and over and over again. You're one of those guys. I'd love to follow along live so that I could comment, but it's always like right when I'm trying to get to bed and it's just, I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that I actually do for that show is I've been doing all the summaries of all the episodes. Right. They're, yeah. they're, they're trying to do a, a some kind of a, a publishing project that's involved with that. Right. Uh, like a like a big wiki and so those serve as the sort of basis for all that yeah yeah i was about to get to that because that yeah. that came up i don't know how many episodes ago but yeah that's i can't imagine how much work that must be condensing all of the minutiae that they're going over at this point um but you're also a musician uh mm-hmm. and you've been i'm guessing you've been a tolkien fan for at least a decade or two by now how, how long yeah. uh i was one of those people who first came in through the films so, I, you know, growing up, I was kind of aware of Tolkien and I was aware of Lord of the Rings, but it was one of those things that kind of felt like if I wasn't already into it, it was kind of like, you know, it was so sort of arcane, you couldn't get into it. Right. So I, I'd grown up like a Star Wars kid and like, you know, comics and stuff like that. So I was a geek, but I, I just never got into, into that world. And then when I went to go see the first film, the Fellowship movie, literally like at the end of that prologue, um, you know, when like, Galadriel's prologue, I was like, I have to know everything there is to know about this world. So in between the first two movies, I read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And then between the second and uh, second and third film, I read uh, Silmarillion and uh, Unfinished Tales. And I was that was it. And I was just off. You know. Yeah. Well, and that, that tends to happen with Tolkien. It's like you get yeah. started and if you don't like it, you don't like it. But if you do, mm-hmm. you're pretty much hooked. Um, people can find you on Twitter at tony mead that's it's just at tony mead no spaces no that's right okay yeah follow him on twitter he definitely talks stuff other than tolkien on there but he definitely does talk a lot of tolkien and he also does music of course so you know you can probably find some of that on there as well some of your music is not tolkien related but some of it is in fact i think you did at least one or two things for the exploring the lord of the Rings series that you played on there didn't you well i did um so around the time, I guess it was in 2020 when Christopher Tolkien passed away, and also when Ian Holm passed away in the same year, I actually did a musical adaptation of Bilbo's last song. Yeah, and uh, and that and that was that was played on there. I'm really proud of that actually, because that was something I did in like a week because I was just like, okay, I need to do this, you know. Right. And uh, and then so for the one of the other podcasts that that Corey does, this, the Silmarillion Film Project, they asked me to come in and do uh, an original song set to. Uh, a set of lyrics that had been written as a, as a poem um, for the, one of the last season, the previous season um, that was about sort of the advent of men and it was called the light in the West. Okay. Um, So getting some of that intro stuff out of the way, what we're really here to talk about is why Tolkien still matters. And the reason I'm specifically talking with Tony about this particular topic is a little while ago, he started a YouTube channel, which unfortunately didn't last. I was really looking forward to it, but I understand it's it's not easy when you have a full-time job and all these other commitments. It's it's hard. Um, 
but it was going to be about why Tolkien still matters. And when he started it, I was super interested in getting his take on it. And then unfortunately, I think you only really put out one video before. I I had like maybe three or four, something like that. And then, uh, yeah, three or four. And I was also doing uh, some side things, like some poetry readings and some other things too. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, But when he, when that started, you know, I had all these really great ideas for stuff that might come up on that channel. And now that they're not going to, I figured, well, we can still get that in Mm -hmm. another way. So um, I guess my first question to you would be, if you had to pick one reason out of all the many reasons why Tolkien still matters, what would be the one that you would tell people, like, why should I care about Tolkien? I would say, I mean, when I when I really did the talk that that was based on the, the Comic Con talk that that was based on, I had to think about that. What what are the sort of the pillar things? And the three main things that I came up with were uh, his ability as a storyteller, his ability to inspire people for scholarship, and his ability to inspire people as artists. But what it, all that comes down to really is us. You know what he the way he affects us and the way he makes us think in a new way about the world and also in older ways about the world that maybe we've forgotten about. And, uh, and the fact that we engage with it in such a personal way, which was always his intent, even, you know, all the world building, and he talks about this in, uh, on fairy stories, you know, that, that all that world building and all the effort that he put into that was to make it so real within that secondary world that we could engage with it at, at the same way we would engage in the primary world. You could engage with it viscerally, physically, you know, like uh, emotionally and intellectually in the way that we can engage in the primary world. And because of that, when people engage with that, they, they, they really feel it, you know? And, it, and I found that, that Tolkien has made me, reading Tolkien has made me a better person um, because of the, you know, the, the thematic material and the, the moral and ethical world that he presents has made me a better person. I, I was saying to somebody recently that I think you can learn more about how to be a good person in the world by reading Tolkien or Lewis or even, you know, lots of, lots of great fantasy authors than reading a hundred self-help books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because, because it's not about being more productive. It's about being a better person. Really. Right. Well, and that's, you know, one of the interesting things I was yesterday as of the date of we're recording this, not the date that this is going to be published on YouTube, obviously. Yesterday, I was actually talking with David Rowe for a video, which by the time anybody's watching this will probably already have been published. Um, And that was one of the things that came up. We were discussing the concept of, you know, wisdom in Tolkien. And a lot of his wisdom is in the form of moral teaching, but he does it in a way that's not beating you over the head or, you know, preaching at you or something like that. He demonstrates, you know, the right way to do things and, you know, does it in a way that is a natural part of the story. Mm-hmm. And therefore it has a more profound effect where, and this is, I forget where this idea comes from, but it's an, it's an old idea that humans are fundamentally story driven creatures. I mean, we tell mm-hmm. ourselves stories for a reason and, the reason we tell those stories is in part to inform ourselves about what our, you know, our values are, our, you know, the ethic of our culture. And that was actually one of the other things that came up in my discussion with, with David was this idea that, you know, it's not even just 
like the proverbs and stuff like that, but things like fairy tales convey a lot of mm-hmm. wisdom and you know, your, your fairy tales or your proverbs can kind of tell you a lot about what a culture values, what they, you know, put first and foremost in, in their ways of living. And so by giving us this grand sweeping epic, Tolkien has the room and the scope to really put a lot of that together in ways that can inform not only from one perspective, but from several perspectives, because, Mm -hmm. Gondor's perspective is different than the elves perspective is different from the dwarves perspective is different from the hobbits perspective, but they all have at least a little bit of the truth in them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the hobbit perspective, I think is one of Tolkien's great innovations, which is that even though he was drawing on all these, this great fairy tale and myth tradition where you have, where it's primarily focused on, you know, nobility and royals and so on and so forth. And the morality is sort of told from their point of view to a certain degree. Having hobbits, which are common people in the story, but also represent common people in the, the real world, having them be the central focus and having to be told from them their point of view is kind of innovative because that's a very 20th century thing to do. Right. Um, and that, that, you know, obviously that a lot of that just came from the fact that he had grown up poor, but had also been in the you know, the corridors of the high and mighty at Oxford. So he had seen it from both sides. He had been in the war, been an officer, but he'd been around a bunch of, you know, poor privates who were braver than anybody that he could have ever met. So by adding that perspective, in a lot of ways, that's very innovative for him, for him to do that. And, and that's why I think it speaks to our modern audience in a way maybe reading, you know, The Death of Arthur might not speak to a modern audience because we have that perspective that yeah. just will latch onto, yeah. Yeah. Although, and this is one of the other things that I think is really important about the way Tolkien writes his stories. You know, there there is definitely that split between like the really, the high and the beautiful that you might find in the Arthurian sagas or, you know, whatever that he really emulates most heavily in say the Silmarillion, but also mm-hmm. to to a fairly strong degree of the, towards the end of the Lord of the Rings. But there is also the dichotomy of you know, there's also the low perspective, not low in a pejorative sense, but like mm-hmm. not everybody is, you know, a mighty warrior or a great king or something like mm-hmm. that. So there's value certainly in both perspectives. But what I find interesting is the way that, and I, I forget who it was that tweeted this, but I, I think it was T with Tolkien on Twitter said, you know, quoted mm-hmm. the passage from uh, the Silmarillion where Aonwe hails Arendil when he's just about to turn around and go back to the ship thinking that well the Valar are just all gone right and and the the point that I made was people are afraid to write that stuff anymore this yeah. and that's why no adaptation will ever really capture Tolkien because and I understand it because there's a certain extent to which the more you strive to reach that level of wonder and just sheer beauty the more likely you are to trip and fall along the way mm-hmm. nevertheless and there's actually a line somewhere and i don't think it's a tolkienian line but it's you know it's it's it'll come to me probably after we finish here but something about reaching to grab a star oft stumbles on a single st- oh it's from the knight's tale i think it's okay. from knight's tale when uh count adamar is telling uh is talking to the main character played by oh my gosh i can't even remember uh, the heath ledger yes um yeah. 
<laughs> and he's been shown to be not a true knight and whatever and so he's basically rubbing it in his face and he says he who strives to touch a star oft stumbles at a single straw and there's truth in that but the point of the movie and i think the point that tolkien really gets through is you may fail every now and then but you never get the really really good stuff unless you try mm-hmm. the other thing too stylistically he earns it especially oh, yeah. the lord of the rings because he starts you out in those early chapters and very much the hobbit tone you know right. it's it's the it's the hobbit tone from say about the middle of the book you know and he's sort of starting you there it's you know like you could even retcon that and say like well those are bilbo's chapters that he wrote you know right yeah and because it's, it's bilbo's tone and then once you know once you meet the black rider on the road it starts to turn and by the time you but but he's earned it by the time you get to the right of the road hero and he's in that paratactic mode of you know of all that 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 momentum and mentioning orame and all that stuff that he's doing he's earned it at that point oh, yeah. you're with him at that point he's not having to yank you up you've been with him to get there and therefore you feel swept up in it because you're along for that ride at that point yeah if anybody's hearing noise in the background that's one of my kids banging on the door oh, uh, so like really good real life stuff here uh, <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah and just the way that, you know, even with the film, really, you know, he doesn't, he, ha- he obviously kind of starts in that high mode. Right. And, and there's the, the really interesting thing is it's not just even about the fact that it, it shows us how we can strive for something higher than what we typically get now. And I mean, take for example marvel cinematic universe they they had some really good high points in some of those movies but it seems like a lot of the stuff they've produced more recently has just evolved into silly humor and it's not even always that funny anymore and the writing is just it's dumbing down to the lowest possible level where it's you know the the other approach of course is to why don't we expect more of people and get more out of them but it's also really interesting how and this is another way I think that Tolkien's importance remains to this day by hinting at all of these older modes and showing us how people in the past did these kinds of things. He also turns on a lot of people to, you know, medievalism and, you know, the study right. of medieval literature, the study of Greek epics, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the things that came before that by and large, most of us com- have completely forgotten, but which used to be considered pretty much your standard classical right. education that every really well-educated person was expected to know because that's just what made you an educated person. A lot of people say that Tolkien is like the gateway drug to medievalism. Yeah, you know, like if you want, like so many medievalists were born by reading the Lord of the Rings, basically because they wanted to see where that stuff came from, and it led them down that rabbit hole. Even things like like the, the linguistic part of it, you know, they fell in love with the language of the Rohirrim, and it's like, well, I want to, and then you realize, oh, this is Anglo-Saxon, and now they want to go study Anglo-Saxon. So, you know, there's yeah, the fact that he's bringing some of that stuff in, you know, the talk that I, I've done, I've done many times now, called "Why Tolkien So Matters." Uh, one of the things I talk about is the techniques that he uses, and there's kind of three categories of those techniques. One is the really innovative stuff, like the Hobbits, for instance, and uh, some of the stuff that he's done that has, has lived on, like the world building. But some of the stuff that's kind of unique to him is that he's bringing back a lot of that stuff. He's bringing back those older modes of storytelling, for instance, where you can 
you could insert a line in there that says, you know, and in future years, they wrote about this. Well, that actually means that they survived. You're kind of telling them the end of the story while you're in the story, but that's a very medieval thing to do. It removes some of the jeopardy, but it also, it heightens the tone to where it it takes on a legendary tone that you, this is you as the viewer slash listener looking back and looking at this at a legendary scale, not just a, 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 just a story, just a, a story that you're, you're a part of. Yeah. Well, and that actually ties in really interestingly to Aragorn and Eomer's conversation where Aragorn tells Eomer, right. not we, but the people who come after us will light, write the legends of our times. Mm-hmm. And there's that whole idea of, you know, what we're reading about is a matter of legend. And mm-hmm. he, even, he even says that, you know, the green earth itself is a matter of legend, and you act like that's the normal thing. It's like, where do you think it came from, man? Right. <laughs> this is this is grand epic stuff. Yeah. It's like, I mean, like, yeah, like the ultimate epic, Dino Lindelay. You know, like right. that's, that's, there you go. There's, there's, there's an epic tale right there, you know, of where the earth came from. <laughs> right. Um, and then there's, you know, there's, there's so many other ways. And speaking of Anglo Saxon, of course, Tolkien is, perhaps in terms of scholarly achievements, most famous for his work in Anglo-Saxon literature, especially Beowulf. Right. Because if he, he pretty much single-handedly upended the kind of received tradition about how the importance of Beowulf, its real meaning in, in the scope of things. And I've been reading some uh, essays by Tom Shippey, and it's – I think the collection is called Roots and Branches or or something like that, but it's just a collection of Shippey's stuff. Shippey, of course, is also a medievalist who happens to be right. one of the best Tolkien scholars. So, I mean, it, it all and he was, fits he was together. basically kind of Tolkien's – he was kind of Tolkien's successor in a lot of ways. Right. Oxford, yeah. yeah. Um, and Shippey goes into some stuff about Tolkien's work on Beowulf, the homecoming of Bjortnoth, which is – I've read The Homecoming of Bjortnoth. I don't want to say I'd recommend it just because you're a Tolkien fan. That can be some it, hard. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's a deep cut. Yeah. Yeah. If you really, really consider yourself the absolute total 100% nerd and you just have to read everything Tolkien wrote, go ahead. But it's nothing like pretty much anything else he ever did. So, but you know, but he, if you're, if you're in the Anglo-Saxon scholarship, it's oh, yeah. amazing. You know, yeah, because because he, because he is getting into that the the moral the moral world of the Anglo-Saxon. You know, it's a lot of ways this sort of tension between this older world that was sort of ruled by honor, where right. the, the 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 moral the moral dichotomy is between honor and shame, as opposed to a Christian world which is sin and virtue. And right. a lot of ways, a lot of times they overlap, but not always. So you have that, yeah, you have that moral dichotomy of do you do the honorable thing or do you do what's right by your people. Yeah. (laughs) But the reason I bring it up is Shippey points out in that essay where he thinks that Tolkien got it wrong, but nevertheless, because of the absolute power and persuasiveness of his arguments, he's still got most of the academic world convinced that he was right. Right. (laughs) And that's that's how influential Tolkien has been in his it's a narrow little niche, but nevertheless, it's a huge amount of influence. And one of the other uh, selections in in the collection is one where he talks about the scholarly influence of Tolkien, and he's like, "Well, he didn't write a whole lot of primary works, and a lot of his stuff that gets cited doesn't get cited a lot. But you look at two things, and it's cited a bajillion times by right. you know. So it's 
his influence was very narrow, but apparently extremely profound. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so especially amongst, those- especially amongst the critics. I mean, that's so such a profound work. I mean, like basically the entirety of modern Babel scholarship just keeps referencing back to Mobsters and the Critics. Yeah, well, and that's another thing too. Reading Tolkien's essays is in some ways as pleasurable as reading his fiction, but it's, it's like reading the thoughts of a guy that you can't even really follow because I've read monsters in the critics and on fairy stories a few times each, but man, it's like, every time I read it, I'm like, I don't, I still don't think I've really understood everything he's trying to say here because it's, it's, it's kind of like reading Lord of the Rings. You can't read it one time and get it everything out of it. You have to read it multiple times to really digest it, understand it, and then you can still keep learning more and more from it every time you do it. It's, it's some, you know, like on fairy stories, it's almost like a work that where Tolkien's trying to distill everything that he's thought about for the last forty years into, you know, an hour-long presentation. And how do I get it all in there? Um, so he does he sometimes he rambles sometimes things sort of like get wrapped around each other but you you get that this is a guy who did the work same thing with Beowulf you know the reason why he can be so convincing is you can tell that he did the work he's not this this isn't him just randomly theorizing he's done the work uh he knows the languages he knows the script he knows that text inside and out and so whatever he's saying even if you disagree with him he's saying with a lot of authority you know you you can agree that he has the authority to say that those things yeah. Um, and speaking of Beowulf and Anglo-Saxon stuff in general, one of the ways in which I wish Tolkien mattered more is, oddly enough, Anglo-Saxon alliterative poetry. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where, you know, when I first started reading Tolkien's poetry and really got into the Lays of Balerion, which is volume four or three, three, I think it's volume three of the History of Middle-earth. Three. It's on my shelf back here. <laughs> <laughs> Andy. Yeah. Um, you know, almost everything in the Lays of Balerion is either poems or commentaries on the poems by Christopher Tolkien. And when I first read it, I was most naturally drawn to the Lay of Lathian because it's a much more easy to follow, you know, the rhyming couplets and you right. know, all that traditional stuff that we it's learn much about. more much more palatable to the modern ear. Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't until I think The Fall of Arthur was published by Christopher Tolkien where he actually goes and explains in some detail how alliterative Anglo-Saxon poetry works that my ear finally caught on to what's going on here. And then I went back and read the Turin poetry from the Lays of Beleriand, and suddenly it's like, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Why has – you know, why has this not been picked up by more people? And again, I, I think part of it is nobody really wants to put in that much work with that high of a potential for failure. Right. Also, just modern It's very culture, easy to do it. It's very easy to do it wrong. You know? Yes. <laughs> modern culture is also going in a direction that is very opposite to that kind of an artistic form. And so, I mean, like how many people are going to do it? But the other thing is – how many people besides Tolkien really studied it enough to do it right in the first place? Mm-hmm. Because that is, again, a very niche thing that Tolkien was into, but it was something that he was so into that he 
translated Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which is in the same mode. Right. He wrote his own Fall of Arthur in that mode. He wrote the Turin poem in the Laza Valerian in that mode. And he did it over and over and over again and kept practicing and kept getting better so that by the time you get to the final form and you look back at the original form, you can see why most people wouldn't do it. Because even Tolkien's early efforts are kind of like, eh, that's not so great. But mm-hmm. then the later stuff, you're like, man, if people would actually put forth the effort, this is good stuff. <laughs> but he's also he's also he's also good doing an adaptation in, in a weird way because of the fact that he's writing it in modern English, modern English doesn't have exactly the same natural rhythms, right? English accent. So the fact that he's able to take that form but use modern English and make the modern English work is just, is just another step. You right. have to know you have to know that original form so well that you can then essentially take it different language because by this point modern english is a different language and and put it in that form and make it work in, yeah. in a way that still that still works yeah yeah um and it's kind of reminiscent of i don't remember when i learned this i think it was a college course i took probably on english literature but they were talking about how you know the the rhyming couplet is it's an italian invention and it's because mm-hmm. virtually every italian I don't remember if it was verb or noun ends in one of two vowel sounds. And so it's like, it's really easy to do rhyming couplets forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. When you take it to English, it's not quite that simple. So yeah, I mean, that's just another layer of difficulty on top of it. Both of those things are from the point of view of the performer, because they are, they're intended to be spoken aloud are also monotonic, monotonic devices. They're, they're devices for memory. So right. the, 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 the alliteration or the rhyming, whichever one you choose, is a device, this is you know, what I know as a singer, that a lot of what you're, the reason why songs rhyme so much is it makes them memorable. Right. So that you know, if you have that rhyme, you know what the line is before it. And it's the same thing with you know, all those bards who are going around you know, and performing Beowulf or performing you know, the Sagawan or whatever. They were, that was one of their ways they would memorize. They memorized it by remembering those alliterations that are in those specific places in the lines. Right. Um, there's another really interesting thing that we kind of touched on earlier in terms of reasons Tolkien is important. And one of the, and it's the idea of the themes that he really addresses in his works. Right. And, you know, I was actually looking at some notes that I had taken at one point and it's amazing how, he handles so many different themes and you don't even necessarily notice it until you really start paying attention. But I mean, some of them are a little more obvious than others. Like the theme of greed, obviously in the Hobbit is a major thing. Right. And it all gets capstoned off by Thorin's final words to Bilbo saying, you know, if more people cherished, you know, I forget the exact phrasing, but you know, those kinds of things rather than hoarded gold, then it would be a merrier world. It's a little bit, more in your face there but there's other themes that he does that you don't even really notice and one that i thought was interesting was he wrote in a letter to somebody that the major themes of the lord of the rings and kind of the broader stuff that he was working on as well was fall mortality and machine right and i never thought of that as any of those as being kind of the themes but when i started looking at the characters in Lord of the Rings and how they treat death just to take mortality as, as one example, I started to realize there really is actually a lot there. Yeah. 
Yeah. The, uh, the mortality slash immortality theme, you know, and having two major groups of people who are on opposite sides of that, where you have a group of mortals and a group of immortals and how that affects how they view the world in terms of time, in terms of their life cycle, in terms of, you know, how they approach problems, what are their motivations and, you know, and that sort of thing. And also how they view each other is a huge theme in there because you know, you know, when you have this theme of mortality where he's trying to explain mortality in, this, in the sense of, you know, if you have a God that is good, why would God allow something like death to exist? So I have this idea of the, you know, the gift of Ilavatar, that this was a, an escape from the world and that the elves in their immortality are trapped in the world, just like the Valar, and they're trapped in the world for its existence. And they don't know what happens at the end of, at the end of time, at the end of the world. Right. Um, whereas men are guaranteed you know something but they just don't know what so by so you're having you have people that don't you want to have a, a, a situation where you have the elves who have no problems and men who do have problems you have very different problems and that leaves that leads them to view the world and act in very different ways it also leads to like a lot of misunderstanding the, like the misunderstandings between men and elves you know such as you know when when you have who are her and who are in gondolin and they're like well just stay here forever it's bliss and they're like we don't have that much time Bergen. we got we got things to do and we can't wait a thousand years for our perfect opportunity to come we have to go get on with it you know yeah it's here well one thing one, one of the themes that i would i would definitely say that is a prevailing theme throughout all of the works is uh the idea of good leadership oh yeah uh, you see you see that and and the fact that tolkien even though he kind of he said i'm kind of like a benevolent anarchist and that's why he kind of puts that on the hobbits. Uh, he said there's a lot of different forms of leadership, everything, you know, hereditary monarchy to oligarchy to elected officials to all kinds of different versions. And, you know, the, the theme that keeps coming up is it's not how you get into power that's the issue. It's what people do with it and the way they view it. And the fall, which is another one of those things that he talks about, a lot right. of the fall comes when people feel that the leadership role they've been in is sort of aggrandize themselves it's about themselves and their rights and their privileges and their what and what's theirs as opposed to leadership as an act of service that when, when leadership is done as an act of service then good leadership can happen and you see that with, you know you see that with, with aragorn you see that with sam you see that with all of the theoden you know theoden literally sacrifices himself for his people all of these forms of good leadership are always uh, leadership is an act of service to the ones who are being led. Yeah. And Theoden is a really great example because, of course, he parallels off of Denethor. Exactly. Yeah. Almost almost explicitly. Not, you know, it's never made explicit, but the way the chapters are done and the way that Mary and Pippin are split up there, you can see the difference. And again, that's a great example of how Tolkien does these teaching moments without directly telling you what the lesson is, but he's just showing you this path leads this direction and this path leads this direction. And one of them doesn't go where you really want to go. <laughs> and it's like, the, and it's also that uh, dichotomy between hope and despair, hope and despair. And the pivot right. point of that is pride. You know, in a lot of ways, it's Denethor's pride that won't allow him that, to have the hope that Gandalf's trying to give him. Right. You know, because he, because he wants it all to come from himself and not from anybody else. Right. Because Denethor at the end, he, he basically comes out and admits what the real problem is. If, you know, if you're going to ask me what I would have, then I would have it as it's always been me, right. ru me ruling with my sons alive and I can't have it. So what's the use? Yes. <laughs> Whereas Theoden is in 
actually, ironically, kind of the opposite position. He's already lost his only son. Right. You know, and yet he's still going along and doing what he's supposed to do as the leader, taking, you know, the initiative where he's supposed to risking his own life, which he does end up, you know, losing, but he loses it in a way that you feel like, you know, even, even if you didn't believe you were going to go to the halls of your fathers where you could, you know, you wouldn't be ashamed. You still feel like on his deathbed, Theoden would still be thinking, well, at least I did what I was supposed to do. Yeah. He, and you know, the first thing that he does once Gandalf brings him sort of back into the world is consider, okay, well, Theoden's gone. I'm going to name Amir my, my son, essentially. I'm going to make him the heir and I'm going to name him my son. I'm going to name Eowyn my daughter. And and now all, what I'm thinking about is that next generation and the future of my people, not what happens to me and what happened to my son. Yeah. Um, we could probably go on and on and on forever about various ways in which Tolkien matters, but we've been at it for a pretty good while and I have kids to get to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we'll go ahead and wrap it up here. We can probably find another time, maybe hopefully in the future to do this again and maybe, maybe pick a specific topic to really focus on a little more. Um, it won't be the, one of the the most popular talks that I did this past Comic-Con was, uh, the talk I did on the Silmarillion, which was called how to read the Silmarillion and why. Yeah. Um, that could be good. It was, it was really great. And, and I, I feel like I made some converts. You know, I mean, some people who are who are willing to try it for the first time, or people who had tried it before and didn't get it, and they were willing to try again. I got a lot, I had a lot of people contact me. It's like, I did it. Like, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm doing it now. And I'm like, okay, I, I'm proud. I'm a proud, proud father now. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, that that actually could be a really good one because I would love to hear your uh, pitch for why you should read the yeah. Silmarillion. I know why I like to read the Silmarillion because I just love it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But certainly there are a lot more reasons what we could go into for that. So that could definitely be a, a good idea for a future video. Sure. Um, that said, we're going to leave it here for now. Uh, and remember to follow Tony Mead on Twitter at Tony Mead. His name should be visible on screen. If it's not, his last name is M-E-A-D-E. And remember, no spaces, just Tony Mead, one, one word. Uh, that said... Uh, you can follow me as well on Twitter at JRRT Lore. And until the next time, Namadie. Thanks to all my Patreon patrons, especially Ringbearer's Ego Voice and One Patron to Rule Them All, and Elf Friends PA Brew News, Deanna Kaufman, Tracy Meehan, and Nathan Dufour. <laughs>